Really? Intentionally? <laughs> oh, it's part of you. When I was a kid, really, really small, my grandfather came up to me and he said, you know, I can stand on my hands. I'm like, really? And of course, in my eyes, he was ancient. I'm like, no, you're too old to do that. He's like, no, I can stand on my hands. You want me to show you? I'm like, yes, I do. I want to see this. So he'd come up to me. He bent down and stood on his hands. <laughs> Love the guy. Every Tuesday, I'm not here at the church. In case you all didn't know it, I don't come to the church on Tuesday. There's other days I don't come to church because I'm doing other things, but on Tuesday, I schedule I don't go to the church. Instead, I go to the coffee shop in town. If you drive by, you'll see my little yellow monstrosity <laughs> parked outside of it. And I love going to that coffee shop. Uh, for some reason, to work on my sermon, I need the bustle and movement and sound. Ever since I was a kid, of course, I was homeschooled, so I would always do my homework where everyone else was going around. Uh, and if I was reading, I would lay, lounged everywhere, and my legs would be going like a windmill when I read, because I needed movement, I needed bustle, I needed sound to get me to focus on things. So I go to the coffee shop, and there's bustle, and there's movement, and there's sound, and I can focus. I love it. I do not get coffee there. Just need to go on record. I do not like coffee. There, there are some coffee drinks that, have, that I have drunk that I have tolerated, and they actually tasted semi-good if you'd removed the coffee from them. So I get hot tea, uh, and they, the ladies there at the coffee shop keep me full of hot tea for the five hours that I'm there. I love it. And then once they close, I head over to the library, and I'm there when the after-school kids get there. And there's bustle, and I finish my sermon. I'm a little weird, but I've accepted it. I love coffee shops, even though I don't like coffee. Yes, I like the bustle, it, I, like, I like the sound, but I love coffee shops. I love the ambiance of coffee shops. I also like saying the word ambiance. <laughs> Every coffee shop has a specific culture, from the logo that they, logo that they choose, to their sign, to the decor. From the minute you walk up to the coffee shop until you go inside and you order your drink, which if you're coffee, I forgive you, and if it's not coffee, good for you. When you walk up, you know what the coffee shop owners think is important. You know what they want the feel of their coffee shop to be, because you feel it, you smell it, you experience it. And if you spend enough time at a certain coffee shop, you start picking up the culture that they were giving out, and you're carrying it to other places. It's interesting that, that it happens that way. Paul says that we as Christians are supposed to be like coffee shops. Our lives are to be evident about who we are. We are to give obvious hints by our conversation, by our language, by our interactions, by our priorities. Hints to who we are, to the culture that we carry, a heavenly culture. And if people spend enough time with us, hopefully they will pick up who we are, it will rub off on them, and they will carry that to other places. 
we are to be like coffee shops. In a phrase, we are to be spiritually mature. Not that coffee shops are spiritually mature, but we are to be spiritually mature. We are to be showing that we are as followers of Christ, living in that way that we know who God is and we're reflecting him wherever we are going. And as a sign of our spiritual maturity, Paul says that we are to be unified. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere humans? So if you remember, Paul has just talked about spiritual maturity and how the spiritually mature can know the things of God and then turn around should share the things of God. Unfortunately, the Corinthians, though he desires them to be spiritually mature, they are not spiritually mature. They are spiritually immature, and they show their immaturity by their disunity. Today, we're going to talk about that as a sign of our spiritual maturity, we should be unified. But before we dive into that, let us pray. Father, today on this Daylight Savings Time Day, I ask that you would be with us, that you'd give us the ability to read, to reason, and to understand, that you would give me the ability to collect my thoughts and to put them in a ways that can be understood. And Lord, I ask that as we study, it wouldn't just be about what is the facts to know, but it would be about our passions being changed and our priorities being shifted, that we would recognize who we are and that we would want to live accordingly. Make it evident what that means so that we would follow you with all our heart. Lord, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Paul says that as a sign of our spiritual maturity, we are to be unified. This is the theme that he has been building since the beginning of 1 Corinthians 1, and he is bringing it to a culmination here in this passage and the rest of chapter 3. And as we dive into this overall theme, I'm going to build his argument from the bottom up. To build his argument from the bottom up, we must first talk about salvation. Salvation. Previously, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Paul gave a contrast between those who are Christians, those who are saved, and those who are not saved. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he gives a contrast between those who are Christians and following him and those who are Christians and are not following him. But they're both Christians. So understand who is talking to, we must unpack what does it mean that we are Christians? What does our salvation mean? So we can have a unified place to stand on. First, it means that Christ saved us when we were sinners. Christ saved us when we were sinners. We believe that Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life. And sometimes, when we rattle off those sorts of things, we believe in Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, we, 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 we don't quite 
think about what that means, that he lived a sinless life. Sometimes, we, we, some people, myself and other people I've talked to, we get this idea in our mind by saying, oh yes, Jesus lived a sinless life, that he was kind of walking around earth in a cloud. And he lived a sinless life because he just emanated sinlessness around him and nothing evil or dirty came near. And he was, but we believe that he was not separated from the sin and dirt around him. We believe, as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 said, that he has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He was perfect. The Bible speaks about him starting off in his ministry. Of course, this is 30 years into his life of living this sinless life while surrounded by sin, dirt, and temptation, that for 40 days he was tempted constantly by the devil and never falling. So think, think about what you have been tempted by these past couple days, whether it's desires, priorities, things you look at, things you want to say, pride, selfishness, hypocrisy, whatever it is that you have been tempted by these past couple days, and maybe it's something you've actually said, oh fine, I'll just live like that. And Jesus was tempted by that exact same thing in his life. Not just in the wilderness, though he was tempted by that exact same thing in the wilderness, but by other things, by other times in his life as well. And he looked that temptation in the face and he willingly said, I will not do it. After living the model life, teaching great things, showing love to the social outcast, looking out for the poor, correcting the theology of the religious elite, Jesus then dies, buried, and comes back to life after three days. And again, we believe all those things is true. We believe that the facts prove that Jesus was the Son of God, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. We believe that the gospel which was promised before since the beginning of time, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He did everything. We believe that his death provides salvation from our sin and reconciliation to God. And we believe that this gospel is received not based on anything we do, but simply upon faith. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Romans 1, 16 to 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We believe that we cannot earn our salvation because we are not perfect. We cannot do anything that is good, enough to, that God will look down and say, that person deserves to be saved. Instead, he looks down and sees everyone as a sinner. And we look over and see Jesus in his perfection, and we realize that is not me. There's no way that I can live a minute like Jesus. And so Jesus willingly made the choice to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. Him in his perfection, having faced our temptation and saying no, looking toward us who face our temptation and say, eh, why not? He says, I want to save that person. I will die for that person because they cannot earn it. I've said it before and I'll probably go to my deathbed saying it. 
we do not deserve our salvation because we cannot earn our salvation. We are sinners. Paul knew this firsthand. Consider how Paul's life changed. When he met Christ, he was racing down the road from Jerusalem to Damascus, wanting to go throw some Christians into prison, perhaps can kill others. And he confesses to Timothy in Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Salvation. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, God himself, saved us when we were sinners. And if we believe that we were not sinners or that we are not sinners, all we have to do is compare ourselves to Jesus and realize, no, we're not that. So what is our salvation? It is that we are saved when we are still sinners. A result of Christ saving us when we are sinners is that we don't change right away. We don't change right away. Don't get me wrong. There are many people who have the Damascus Road experience where God shines a light into their heart and they say, I want Jesus, and immediately their life changes. They go from being a drug addict to completely clean, addicted to alcohol to be completely clean, all these things to be like this model citizen. But even then, those people who have that drastic, dramatic change are still sinners. And the rest of us who don't have that drastic, dramatic change are still sinners. Paul, even though he went from being a murderer to a life giver overnight, still admitted that he was not perfect, that he needed growth, and he took the time for that growth. I think about when he wrote his autobiography in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Galatians 1, 15 to 17, he talks about this time that he needed for growth. He says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, And called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that it might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. He spent three years after his salvation to taking time to study, to pursue God and see what he needed to change. And even then he wasn't perfect. When someone trusts in Jesus Christ, we start a journey of getting to know Jesus and being changed by him. John writes in 1 John 1, verses 8 to 10. 1 John 1, verses 8 to 10, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, speaking of Jesus, and his word is not in us. John is writing to Christians about Christians, and he says that we are all sinners, and we remain sinners because that is who we are. I think about Wednesday nights during our prayer time. We have a specific format in our prayer, and we start with praising God, then we move to a time of confession, and then we bring some needs to God, and we finish off by pra- praising him. And that time of confession, it's when we voice God's, hey, hey, we've, pray- we've acknowledged who you are, and now we have to remember who we are because we're not you. And there's sometimes, I'm sitting there, and I, you know, I start us in that section of praying confession, and my mind goes blank. And I sit there and I think, well, I know I'm not perfect, but goodness, I can't think of anything I sinned about today. 
And even then, in that thought, shows my sin. The pride that I have and not willing to actually reflect on who I actually am. We are sinners. And I know you all know this. You have yourself accepted Jesus Christ, and after accepting Jesus Christ, you have indulged in sin. And slowly you've been convicted by it. And sometimes not been convicted by it. Some of you are much more mature in Christ than I am, and you're still coming up and telling about things that God has convicted you about that you didn't realize was in your life before, and you were wanting to change as such encouragement. I think about stories that Paul told about giants of the faith in his life who were still sinners. One day, Paul and Peter are in Antioch together, and they've been there for quite some time. They're having a great time fellowshipping with the Christians in Antioch, both Jews and non-Jews gathered there, And then some bigwigs from Jerusalem come up. Now, in the Jewish culture, if you were a Jew, you were not supposed to eat with a non-Jew. It would be considered unclean to do that. And so there were some Jewish Christians that were still caught up in that mode of thinking. And these bigwigs from Jerusalem came over to Antioch. And Peter, the apostle, the one that was people say was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the one everyone looked up to. He was the leader of the apostles. Jesus' right-hand man, he looks at these big relics from Jerusalem and says, I want to make myself look good in their eyes. So when it comes time for dinner, he goes and sets a separate complete table from the non-Jewish Christians so that himself and these big-wig Jewish Christians can eat in the correct, clean way. And he influenced other Christians to do the same, even Barnabas, the encourager, the one who accepted Paul when no one else would. Barnabas said, oh, since Peter's doing it, I better do it too. And they indulged in hypocrisy and racism. And Paul openly challenged Peter in front of everyone. And called him out in really some really harsh words you can read about in Galatians chapter 2 on his sin. My point is, if Peter, who walked with Jesus and who was the leader of the church early on, was still actively living in sin, blatant sin, 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, we will definitely not be changing our sin overnight. And while this fact is true, and it should give us comfort so we don't have to beat ourselves up when we see ourselves sinning and say, oh, why am I not perfect like Jesus? This fact does not allow us to stay who we are. Because while Christ saved us when we were sinners, and while we do not change right away, we are called to grow. We are, should be able to draw a line in the sand and say, before this is Christ, after this is Christ, And we see a progression happening after Christ. Just like when my kids grow, we have this calendar, not calendar, whatever that thing is called. There you go. Whatever they said. On the wall where you can mark their height. And Grace made her own in her room. She can mark her own height. 
we see progression happening. As Christians, we should see progression happening in our life as well. Which brings us to our text. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Paul has an expectation that the Corinthians church as a whole would grow more spiritual, that they would follow Christ, seeking his ways, reflecting his ways to the world around, but the Corinthians are not doing that. Instead, they're seeking the ways of the world and reflecting the ways of the world to those in the church. Every letter in the New Testament is built on the fact that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. Every single letter in the New Testament is based on that fact. And every single letter in the New Testament says that if we believe that that fact is true, the awesomeness of the fact that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners should influence us in a way that we will live differently, that we will have growth in our life, that we would reflect him more and more. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians 1, verse 27, Philippians 1, 27, Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. How about what he tells the, uh, the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10? Colossians 1, 9 to 10, Paul says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Just for kicks and giggles, here's a passage from Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 11. You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with you, each of you, as a father deals with his own children, so that you would reflect us in holiness, righteousness, and blameless. If we have turned to Jesus in faith, if we realize the amazingness of our salvation, we will seek to live differently as God reveals those different steps of maturity to us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, Philippians 3, 7 to 11, he says of himself, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. We should seek to grow. We should seek to leave immaturity behind and seize Christ-likeness. So what is our salvation? Our salvation is that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We did not change right away, but we were called to grow. We were called to grow. Moving on from salvation, let's talk about maturity. What does it mean that we are growing? Maturity. 
In the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-4, to 4, Paul contrasts, as I said, Christians who are mature and Christians who are not mature. Christians who are actively following God and Christians who are not. And when he describes these Christians who are not mature, who are not actively following God, he uses two words. One word he uses once, one word he uses twice. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? The NIV translates these two different words as worldly. If you have the King James, it translates these two words as carnal. So you'll see either worldly or carnal three times in your passage. If you have a different translation, you might see a different word. It will be used three times. But these words, even though it's all translated the same, mean two slightly different things. If you, come to, if you go to someone's house, if you come to my house, and I ask you to set the table, which I wouldn't do, but if I ask you to set the table, I might ask you to set the table with silverware, or I might ask you to set the table with utensils, or I might ask you to set the table with cutlery. We use those three words interchangeably, but actually they mean slightly different things. And the same is true of these words that Paul's using that are translated worldly or carnal. The first instance of the word in verse 1, it says, but as people you are still worldly, it speaks of human desire. Instead of being a people who live by the Spirit, there are people who are controlled entirely by human desire. And Paul is, is describing them in their unspirituality, that there are those who are controlled by human desire. The second and third instances of the word that are found in verse 3, where he says, um, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? That's the same word. Those two words are the same word. And that's an evaluation of their unspirituality. The first is a description, the second is an evaluation. So not only do they act according to human desire, but they are unspiritual in all senses of the word. The way they act has permeated every part of them. They exalt human self-sufficiency. They experience life for the pursuit of only their own ends. They're centered completely on themselves. This is who they are. In the contrast between these two words and the phrase living by the Spirit, Paul discusses what our maturity in Christ is supposed to be based upon. He says it is not based upon human desire. If we are growing in spiritual maturity, we are growing and dying to ourselves and putting our own human desire in the past, saying, I want to follow God, not me. Spiritual maturity is following Christ, seeking his ways and reflecting his ways to the world around him. Human desires play nothing into that. Paul says, instead of living by the Spirit, Corinthians, you are living by human desire. We could read a lot of different passages in the Bible about the acts of the flesh. There's a lot of passages where Paul just lists acts of the flesh. But it's one thing to read a passage of acts of the flesh, and it's another thing to actually understand those passages to recognize them in our life and turn away from them. So I'm not going to read those passages because they would just be words flying through our minds. Paul says that if we make all of our decisions based upon what we want, we will not be living by the Spirit. We will not be spiritually mature. 
Practically, what does this look like? Well, how do we treat our spouse? Is the way we treat our spouse based on godliness or is it based upon how I feel right now? Do we make decisions in our life based upon fear or is it based upon what God has called us to do? Is our beliefs about God and his ways and how we should live in the culture around us defined by the culture, our neighbors, our family, or is it based upon what the Bible actually says we are supposed to do? Are we living based upon human desire on the spirit? Oftentimes our desires get in the way of godliness. David wrote this in Psalm 51 verse 10. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David realized that his affections, his desires, were not in line with God's ways. And he yearned with all of his heart to walk in the way of God. Our maturity is not based upon human desires, which leads us to the second point. Our maturity is not based on self-sufficiency. Our maturity is not based on human self-sufficiency. By connecting the one word for worldly to the other word for worldly, Paul is making a drastic statement. He tells the Corinthians, yes, you claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. You claim to depend only on him for salvation and for life. However, by being controlled entirely by human desire, you are behaving like a non-believer. Your actions say that you are centered on yourself instead of God. Say you walk into a coffee shop. The sign says that they're a coffee shop. So you assume that they're a coffee shop. You walk in and you look around and every single person that is there is drunk. And you look at the menu and there's no coffee listed on there, not even tea, just beer. Beer, 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 beer. Now I'm not here saying that drinking is bad. But this is the example. The coffee shop says it's a coffee shop. They're advertised their coffee shop, but you walk in and they're not a coffee shop. What would you think about that coffee shop? Not too good of a coffee shop. Paul is saying something rather strong to the Corinthians. He acknowledges that they have the Spirit because they're a Christian, but he says that they're living as if they've never received the Spirit, as if they've never met Jesus Christ. And fortunately, too often, we as Christians are like a coffee shop that serves only beer. We say that we're a follower of Jesus Christ, but nowhere in our life can people look and say, that one knows Jesus. It's a pretty severe statement. How would you like it if I came up to you and said, I know you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Dean, but I can't tell it, and no one else can tell whether you think God exists or not. We wouldn't like that. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. He said, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The Corinthians are acting like a people who are only focused on themselves and not God. And it's a harsh, harsh statement. But we all need to examine our life and say, Is this true of me? Not only is Paul accusing individual Christians of being like this, but he is accusing the Corinthian church as a whole of being like this. 
I'm sure if you walked to the, to the Corinthian church, or if you flew there as it may be, rowed your boat, got there to the Corinthian church, you walked in and you looked around, you would probably be able to see some people that were there and you'd think, oh, those people are great Christians. Or if you walk, talk to some of the Corinthian church and you said, who would you say is the best Christian here? They'd be able to point and say, oh, that person's a great Christian. They read their Bible every day. That person prays. That person leads Bible study. That person does this thing. That person does that thing. That person is a model Christian. But even the spiritual ones in the Corinthian church, the people that everyone look up to, didn't care enough about the testimony of the Corinthian church to stand up and call the other people in it to maturity. And by not doing that, Paul lumps these spiritual ones into the worldly Christians, those who live their lives as if God does not exist for them. And what is the big sign of the Corinthian church's ungodliness and troubling condition that Paul would say such harsh things to them? The main evidence for the Corinthians being controlled entirely by human desire for being caught up in self-sufficiency instead of being controlled by the Spirit. The main sign that Paul says, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt this is who you are, is their disunity. That's what he boils it down to, is their disunity. He says, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? The sin of Christians not pursuing unity. Unfortunately, just like gossip is the sin that so many Christians indulge in and turn a blind eye to, so disunity is the sin that so many churches turn a blind eye to. It is acceptable to have jealousy and factions. It is acceptable to care more about our desires than the unity of the body of Christ. It is acceptable to throw up fake divisions based upon which teacher we like and which teacher we don't like, which minor theological viewpoint we follow and which minor theological viewpoint we don't follow. It is acceptable to do all that rather to say that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Let us be unified in worshiping him. In Galatians, Paul talks about those who live by the Spirit versus those who live by the flesh. Those who are mature and those who are not mature. And as an introduction to that discussion, before he gets to the fruit of the Spirit at the end of Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes in Galatians 5, 13 to 15. Galatians 5, 13 to 15, Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Instead, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. A sign of someone indulging the flesh is when they're pursuing disunity. A sign of someone walking by the Spirit is when they love their neighbor as their self, seeking to be unified. We're called to maturity. And our maturity is not based on human desire or human self-sufficiency. Our maturity is based on the mind of Christ. It is based on the mind of Christ. Several weeks ago, we discussed we've been given the Spirit to teach us the things of God. And we've been given the mind of Christ to influence our actions. So those who have the Spirit and who have the mind of Christ should be different. There should be a definite 
Christian living versus a worldly living, a Christian ethic versus a worldly ethic. I think about Adam and Eve. They were created to be in the image of God. And there have been books and volumes and lectures and all sorts of things of what it means that humanity was created in the image of God. But simply, they were created to be God's representations to the created world. All of creation, we're supposed to be able to look at Adam and Eve and say, that's what God's like. Unfortunately, they sinned. And they chose to reflect creation rather than the creator. In Christ, we are called to be that image again, to be a representation of God to the created world. And every day we have a choice. Every minute we have a choice. Every time we breathe, we have a choice. Are we going to reflect God right now or are we going to reflect sinful creation? Are we going to act in maturity right now or are we going to act as if we never met Christ? That's the choice. There's no middle ground. Paul points out a drastic contrast between those who pursue human desire and self-sufficiency versus those who pursue the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 19 to 26, he talks about that contrast. And it's a passage that so many of us has read. He says the acts of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 to 26 are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking, and envying each other. He's talking about the Spirit, those who walk by the Spirit and those who do not. Those who do not pursue disunity, factions, dissensions, all these things. Those who do walk by the Spirit pursue unity. And he tells the church at the very end of all this passage about walking by the Spirit, he says, don't provoke each other, don't envy one another. Work towards unity. Jesus said it this way in John 13, verse 35. John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not if you have all the theological truth correctly. It's not if you follow all the right teachers. It's if you love one another. Our state of spiritual maturity, whether we're following Christ, seeking his ways and reflecting him to the world around, is revealed by how unified we are with Christ's church, by our love for each other. So we talked about our salvation. We talked about maturity. Now let's talk about our actions. How then shall we live? If all this is true, how then should we live? Remember, worldliness is not an option. As a sign of our spiritual maturity, we are to be unified. But what does that look like practically? Simply put, we are to, we are to choose unity rather than selfishness. But we can see these, this decision in two main areas in Paul's passage. First, we see it in how we treat our leaders and our teachers. We see it in how we treat our leaders and our teachers. Paul gives a warning to the Corinthians. Think about how a child acts when it is self-centered. We have all seen self-centered children. 
we have seen a child who does not care about the interests of another child. Unfortunately, lots of times we act like that child. When we have this child of this, this, this attitude of this child, we're going to have wrong ideas about the quality and required methods of Christian preaching and teaching. When we care only about ourselves and what we want, it's very easy to place an undue value on the style of someone's teaching or, or the words that they use or how they display their quote-unquote learning by, by the, the way they prepare their messages and all that sort of thing. And we'll place so much emphasis on that over gospel content. To be spiritually minded is to bring different criteria to the role and style of preachers and teachers. The Corinthians were split between those who are followers of Paul and those who are followers of Apollos. And Paul and Apollos had different teaching styles, but they also had different theology. And Paul said a split on teachers, a split based on teachers is worldly, selfish, and against the way of Christ. The spiritually mature will seek to learn the ways of God any way that they can. Yes, we all have different learning styles. We have different personalities that find certain speaking styles exhilarating and other speaking styles dead on boring. And it's true. But the important thing is, when we sit in front of a teacher, is has the gospel been proclaimed? Has the word of God been presented? And if that is true, we shouldn't divide over the teacher or the teaching. We should unite in the truth that is presented. If we choose not to listen to someone because we don't like their style, we are following the way of the Corinthians and we're living in a way that says we have never met Jesus Christ. What if a teacher or a leader needs to grow in their ability to present? We are all imperfect. I will be the first to say that I am not perfect in my preaching. My wife will stand up with me and tell you that. But we must all remember love and unity. When someone needs to grow, we come to them in humility. We acknowledge the work of God that we see that they are already doing. We voice it, because oftentimes it's not voiced. We voice it and say, hey, we see God's hand. We see what you're doing. We appreciate all these things. And then we point out the small point that should be changed. And then we give them some resources and help equip them so that they will change in that area. You have to have all three. You tell them we see these good things, you need to change, let me help you with it. But remember, the focus is love and unity. We don't just ditch teachers that we don't like if they're faithfully presenting the gospel and the word of God. We choose unity rather than selfishness in how we treat our leaders and our teachers. Secondly, we choose unity rather than selfishness in how we treat our relationships and how we treat our relationships. Consider theological discussions. There are some people in this church who love theological discussions, some people that do not. I love theological discussions. Paul says that the Corinthians, that when they're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, that they're acting like a non-believer. He's not saying that theological discussions are bad. He's saying that we should not divide over them if we are believers. What does that look like? 
many of us have pet theological viewpoints. These are ideas we've thought a lot about. They're ideas that we consider important. They're ideas which we think are central to a proper understanding of Scripture and the ways of God. However, a lot of these pet theological viewpoints are minor. Some of them are huge, but a lot of them are minor. And they're things that great men of God have disagreed upon for the last 2,000 years. And in those disagreements, they've come together as great men of God and said, we believe these core things. And these non-core things, neither side is heresy. Because people on both sides are going to be worshiping together shoulder to shoulder in eternity one day. They do not keep us from having salvation. So in our discussions, we should always come back to what we agree on. We should always be pointing each other to the gospel and what it means to reflect Christ in the community. That's the point of our life. Consider our conflicts. When we get hurt by a believer in Christ, oftentimes we don't want to seek reconciliation. We were hurt and we feel hurt and that person hurt me. Therefore, I don't want to feel hurt again. I will distance myself from them. Sometimes an unsaved friend or an unsaved family member will try to give us advice on how we are to keep ourselves from getting hurt again. And we might hear phrases about keeping toxic people away or you have to do what is best for you or if they hurt you, they're not worth your time. And all those phrases are fine and good except when it gets in the way of showing a brother and sister love and unity. We're called to love and unity. Scripture clearly teaches that we are to seek reconciliation with a brother and sister in Christ. The Corinthians were not seeking reconciliation. They were constantly quarreling. They were constantly shoving up factions and dissensions. So what do we do when we come to a situation where we cannot find common ground or reconciliation with a brother and sister in Christ? Something happens, we were hurt, we feel hurt, and we just want to distance ourselves with that person. What do we do? Jesus tells us that we bring the leaders of the church into the equation. This requires humility. It requires a desire to show Christ rather than to boost our pride. When we choose reconciliation over our own selfish desires, we're showing spiritual maturity. If the person we're quarreling with will not talk with us about the situation, well, they will not seek reconciliation. We've done everything we can do. We've tried to have that talk. It is for us to constantly keep the door open for future discussion because Christ has called us to love and unity if we're spiritually mature. Consider interpersonal relationships. Those of you who might be tired right now, this is the last topic, so bear with me. Paul says that the Corinthian church was filled with jealousy. People who are jealous do not make good relationships. James says in James 3.16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder in every evil practice. Envy comes from pride, it comes from selfishness, it comes from human desire, it comes from a focus on self rather than a focus on God. All breakdowns of relationship comes from a focus on self rather than a focus on God. So what would happen in our dealings with each other and every single time we are with a brother and sister in Christ, what would happen if we prayed, God, how can I lift this person up today? God, how can I encourage them through my interactions, through what I say, through how I react, through what I do? God, may the person that is in front of me be more like Christ after my time with him. What would happen if every single time we interact with a brother and sister in Christ, that is going through our mind, seeking to lift up the person across from us 
that they are more like him after being with us instead of constantly saying, what am I getting out of this? If we focused more on glorifying God rather than on how we look or what people will think or how our desires will be fulfilled, all of our interactions would be defined by unity rather than selfishness. Paul says as as a sign of our maturity, we are to be unified. So my question for you, finally as we close this, is this. If every single person in the church was like you, what would this church be like? Would Would we be a unified and loving church or would we be at each other's throats? Would we live in line with who we say we are? Would the inside of our coffee house match what is advertised? Or would it not? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your son to die for us while we were still sinners. For looking down with pity on us poor miserable creatures and saying that you loved us so much that you would send yourself son to die, that we might be united with you. Lord, I cannot fathom that love and that selflessness. And I know I do not reflect that love and selflessness myself. Lord, teach us all what it means to reflect you to each other, that the world around might know that we are your followers beyond a shadow of a doubt and that we have something worthwhile. Teach us what that means. Teach us what it looks like. And Lord, when we have seen it, help us to live according to it. Thanks, Father. Amen. Take our hymnals and stand. Number 253. 253. Where the Spirit of the Lord is.